The American Republic was founded upon principles discovered and tested through millennia of Western civilization for the explicit purpose of securing the rights and liberties of each of us. Welcome to Taproot, where your hosts will study, analyze, and evaluate the efficacy of our government in performing its single mission to secure the natural rights of each individual citizen. Then we will develop, refine, and propose specific actions to correct the ship of state. Join us as we reveal the underpinnings of our system of governance and demonstrate strategies, tactics, and techniques to clear away the rubble, build again, and maintain on the ancient foundations of our new republic. Taproot is co-hosted by Todd Williams, a dedicated U.S. citizen with a history of effectively holding accountable his elected employees, and S. Marshall Wilson, retired combat veteran of the U.S. Army and former West Virginia state legislator. Todd, what's the topic for today's discussion? Hello, everyone. Welcome to Taproot, where we plumb the depth and encompass the breadth of liberty. My name is Todd Williams, and I'm honored to serve as your host. My co-host today is Marshall Wilson, husband, father, citizen teacher, and former state legislator, infantry officer, and former missionary in the Peruvian Amazon. Marshall, how are you doing today? I'm doing great, Todd. How are you? I'm doing great. Thank you. So in today's episode, we're interviewing a, uh, a friend of ours and a special guest, Roy Ramey from Cabell County, West Virginia. Roy, it's great to have you here with us today. Uh, could you please introduce yourself and tell our listeners a bit about you? Hey, yeah, uh, Todd uh, and, and Marshall, too. It's a real honor and privilege. Uh, I've really appreciated working with you all in the past on some uh, some events and projects and programs together and uh, to be on your show especially one of the early shows, is a real honor to be here. So thank you for having me. You ain't special. I mean, we'll invite anybody. Oh, I didn't say special. We, we invite anybody who has the temerity to run for office in West Virginia, or as I like to say, to stand for election in West Virginia. We'll get them on here and rake them over the coals. We don't care. Cool. So, uh, so prepare yourself. You're about to be raped. I've been raped. So bring it. Don't make it easy on me. Okay. Anyway, thank you for having me on the show. Yeah, it's, it's, we're glad that you're here with us. So, Marshall, I would, uh, I believe that you probably have some questions for Roy. Um, actually, Roy, go ahead and, and tell us a little bit about you. That was, that was where we were going and we got sidetracked. Uh, and, uh, you know, a bit about your career, uh, your interest in agriculture, how you became interested in, and what you, uh, you know, some of your interests in farming and agriculture. Sure. Thanks. So, uh, yeah, I'm a proud family man. Uh, I have a, a wonderful wife uh, who uh, I don't know what I would do without her in this she life. She's be, she's the foundation of, of our home for sure. And uh, I have a wonderful teenage daughter who we homeschool. And uh, and 
she's turning out to be just like me. And I don't know if that's a good thing or not, <laughs> but anyway, I'm proud of her either way. Uh, I'm a combat veteran. Uh, I spent 33 years in the army. Uh, I've been on uh, active duty in the national guard and reserves. And, uh, I was, uh, super proud to be able to serve the people of this country. And, and, uh, I, I felt compelled that that was what God wanted for my life. And, uh, now I'm retired. And, uh, so I'm moving on to uh, serve in, uh, in a different way, but still serving. Uh, and I've been farming for the last several years. I grew up farming, but uh, now I have my own farm and, uh, We've had a lot of problems in the farming industry and with the food regulation, and that led me into uh, what we're actually going to talk about today uh, to help get uh, government out of our farming business so much and uh, get us uh, to restore freedom. I'm a constitutional conservative. Uh, I believe uh, the government's role is to protect our inherent uh, natural rights and uh, that they're not supposed to be weighing us down with all the regulations and burdens that we have. Uh, just protect our rights and uh, and stay out of the way. Uh, my mission is really to uh, to reduce the government regulations and to empower uh, people to have uh, the opportunities that they see for themselves and to uh, empower more young people to go into farming and food production overall, uh, to improve the uh, quality of our food production and to uh, produce food more for our local communities. It'll build a strong economy and it also builds security by uh, doing that. So that's the mission that I'm on right now. Uh, prior to running for office, uh, I've been on uh, on a mission to educate people in that. Uh, we educate our consumers and other folks in the community. And so everything just kind of nests together and fits as a common mission that supports uh, all the same goal. All right. You ready? Go for it, boss. Okay. You mentioned food safety, regulation for food safety. You've also mentioned food security. What is the difference between food safety and food security? Uh, that's a good question. So uh, food safety uh, is making sure that your food is not contaminated when you get it and going to poison your body. Uh, when you uh, know your farmer and you know the practices that they're using, uh, does this look clean or not? You know, you want to make sure that your farmer is using clean practices. Uh, so that you're not introducing, uh, you know, bad bugs and uh, things into your body that uh, that's going to make you ill. Uh, food security is actually having that food available to you. Uh, do we have enough food for what we need? Is it coming from uh, good sources uh, within our community? Uh, generally, in my opinion, makes it uh, more secure because, uh, number one, you know where it's coming from, so you build in the safety as well. Uh, right. But then... Uh, uh, you're bringing food amongst the people right there rather than is it coming from across the country or another country altogether. Right. So then you wouldn't have to worry about transportation to get the food there, much less transportation involved in the in the risk of uh, contamination or people uh, tampering with the food or whatever. Right. Yeah. So, you know, and, and in the current system that we have, you know, we transport, you know, a head of lettuce from Salinas, California, as an example I see that all the time, and uh, our current food safety system uh, is supposed to prevent the foodborne illnesses, yet we see all the time, about every other week, it seems like we've got a recall notice uh, to throw away that head of lettuce that came here two weeks ago. By that time, you've already eaten it, uh, yeah. or it's half-rotted already, and 
you know, their version of a recall is not bring it back to Kroger's and get your money back that you've spent your hard earned money on. They tell you to throw it away. So, right. uh, so now you've spent money on a product that wasn't fit to eat to start with. And now you're still throwing it away and not getting it. Uh, and you, you might be better off. I don't know. <laughs> but if yeah. you get uh, that head of lettuce from a local farmer, uh, then you've cut out, you know, a whole week's worth of logistics in there. Uh, and you might actually know who uh, John Smith is that grew that lettuce and you're supporting his farm. You're supporting uh, the seed company that he got his seeds from and, and everything right there within the community. So, Okay, but the recall is a demonstration of the food safety process in action. So if you buy your lettuce from John Smith down the road, is there any recall? Is there is there anyone standing there between you and John Smith saying, hey, you need to check this lettuce out. It might be bad. You know, there's a little individual responsibility in your food, and we have abdicated that responsibility over the last 50 years or so uh, in the current model that we have. And you have to take some responsibility for yourself. When you know John Smith down the road and you can go look at his field, you can tell how he grows it. You go over here and look at the packing shed and you see how did they prepare it? And is this a clean facility? And, and I can know to either get it or not get it. And, you know, I might not go there and look at everything, but I'm going to go talk to my neighbor who did. And he's going to tell me, you know what? Don't get it from John Smith over here. Uh, my kid got sick last week. And pretty soon, a lot of us are going to listen to that because we don't want to get our kids sick or, you know, our family. So right. uh, there's, there's a built-in safety mechanism. The other part is it's small scale. So when that happens at a, at a you know, one producer, then uh, you've got it in a small local area. You don't have it going across the whole country, as in the example of Salinas, California. Where all did that lettuce go that was, you know, truckloads and rail loads of produce? Where did it go? Sure. Who got it? Well, and the other thing is, too, I feel like uh, the logistics and shipping costs to get that produce from, you know, say South America, even in some cases to here uh, and the freshness, they have to add uh, preservatives to that to keep it fresh for the transportation. So if you're getting, uh, you know, heirloom quality stuff from a local farmer, then you're cutting all of that out. Right. Well, a couple of, <clears throat> if I may, a couple of things about that. First of all, uh, that works fine for people who live out in rural areas like I do. You know, I mean, I, I literally go down the road here and I buy chickens from a guy who raises a bunch of them and he, you know, they're organic, they're, they're home raised and he takes good care of them. His name's Mr. Dunham. He does a great job, but people who live in towns, they don't have that option. You know, they go to work all day. They come home, they're going to take care of the kids. They need food ready and available and they can't go out and inspect Mr. Dunham's farm. I've been there. I've seen what he does and I'm, I'm very impressed with it. But the thing is, they don't have that opportunity. The other thing is, like me, they don't have the expertise. You know, I live out, you know, in a rural area, but I am by no means a farmer. And I could look at what's going on there. And, and you know, except for the fact that I, I've actually put some effort into studying it and everything, I, I would have no idea what I was looking at. Mm -hmm. So the question is, who do I trust? Do I trust someone who has a degree and who has been trained by the government to inspect. And, uh, you know, this is their full-time job to go out and inspect a farm and to make sure the food my kids are going to eat is safe. Or do I trust my neighbor, Bob, to say, yeah, old Bubba over there, he raises great chickens and, uh, you know, you should buy them. Yeah. So let's uh, let's talk about that point of trust first. 
uh, in the current system that we have, we got the, you know, the college degree person uh, that's doing all this inspection. And we think we trust them in our society. And I hear this from people all the time. Well, you know, I trust this guy. Or you hear from the other side that uh, like you go to the, the meat processor, for instance, and he'll tell me an example of these very inspectors who don't know the difference between uh, a steer or a heifer or a bull. Are you telling me that's actually happening? That is actually happening. Someone you know who's processing. Yes, I do. Wow. That's a local processor. I mean, that's anecdotal, but I can't argue with it. Uh, I mean, I can't say that it didn't happen. And and those are are our government inspectors who come in and don't know the difference between one one cow versus another. Uh, Okay, so that's happening. All right, all right, fair enough. So let's say that I live in town. I want my kids to have good food. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I want to buy local. I want to mm-hmm. buy fresh, right? Mm-hmm. But I don't trust myself to inspect the food because there's sure. no, I mean, I understand. I, you know, I don't have a microscope. I don't right. know what's growing on these on these plants and sure. you know, or or even in the in the meat and I want my kids to be safe, right? <clears throat> so is there is there a method for private inspection? And then a way for it to be paid for. So let's say, uh, you know, we have farm markets out here and they're, they're beautiful. They're wonderful things. They're not only farm markets, but they're involved in uh, uh, agritourism and they bring people in. Yeah, we're right out in the west, the eastern panhandle. And they're bringing in people from western Maryland and northern Virginia, which is great. Lots of money coming into, into Berkeley County. But the thing is that they count on the government inspection to ensure those who come in to buy from them who are not farmers who don't right. know what they're looking at to ensure that they've got safe food. Mm. So, you know, you talk about food security, which is basically food being available, which I, you know, I'm a, I'm a national security guy and I recognize that as an issue, but um, if it's not safe, you don't have food security. You just got, a bunch right. of, you just got a bunch of poisonous garbage. So right. is there an option for say the, uh, you know, the, 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 uh, these farm markets to have inspections and to, uh, you know, I mean, how do they pay for that? Where does the money come from? Mm-hmm. Does does the money they save by not paying the taxes to have the inspectors come out or whatever else goes into that, do they actually pay the, the federal inspectors or the state inspectors to come out? Yeah, so, uh, so let's start with the point of private options. So let's take the electrical industry. Uh, there is uh, an organization called UL, and they inspect different electrical underwriters components. Correct. Okay. Correct. And that's a voluntary program. So if you create uh, an electrical gadget, you know, say a, an outlet, electrical outlet, mm-hmm. uh, then you can send it to them. You're paying for them to evaluate the safety of that device based on how you've manufactured you're it. You're not paying for them to endorse it. Uh, you're not. But when when they say this meets the criteria for safety that that we, we being an underwriter laboratory, says that this is a safe product, then they'll allow you to put their tag on that. So you get your outlet here in, in Lowe's or Home Depot or wherever you get and you see UL, then you as the consumer can know this is a safe product because I have an understanding of what UL is. So who so, establishes the standards by which they grade? Is it UL? So in the that scientists case, at UL. The UL says, here's what we represent. And so as a consumer, you can look at what those standards are. We can do the same thing for food safety and uh, and establish organizations, private organizations, who says, here is our safety standards. And then as a consumer, you don't have to know, is this a safe product or not, you know, all those different parts. You just need to know, 
here are the standards that they maintain. And now when this product has this label on it, I can trust it. Okay, but but do their standards have anything to do with federal or state law? They wouldn't have to. In the in the proposed system, if it's voluntary and it's private, it doesn't need to be state. So as it is right now, we do have state and federal, and they're failing. In those examples that I gave you about Salinas, California, that's a federally inspected facility, and they're still sending out food that gets recalled on a regular basis with foodborne illness in some cases uh, for folks who consume that. Uh, you have USDA inspected meat that occasionally is contaminated and recalled. So those are government inspected programs. The, so do we uh, have an agricultural version of UL right now? Uh, at this point, we don't have a nationally known program that does that. Okay, but we're talking about the state of West Virginia. Correct. So in the state of West Virginia, let's get back to the the uh, <clears throat> the city version. We're a small state, and when we talk about cities, you know, we're talking mainly like uh, Charleston, Huntington, Martinsburg are our big cities, Morgantown. and they're still Morgantown. Yep, uh, uh, Weirton, and we're still under fifty thousand people at the biggest end of that and everything else is smaller. So uh, we're not talking about New I York like City. I absolutely do as well. That's why I'm staying in West Virginia. You know, I might have better economic opportunities to go somewhere else, but I love West Virginia. I love being here and the people and, and so forth. So uh, we're not talking about New York City sized places. We're talking about relatively small communities and you develop a farm network around those towns. And this goes back to an old model where you had a town with a network of support businesses around there and they support that town. Mm -hmm. If the town is too big to be supported, it's self-limiting unless we, in, we develop the industrial system. And I'm not proposing to get rid of the industrial system. I'm proposing a parallel economy where we can have the industrial system. If you want to go buy your products at, you know, the big box store and get these things that you have a trust in, God bless you and go for it. I'm proposing to have a parallel system to where a small farmer can support their local economy in their community and consumers can get those products as well based on their choice. And you don't have to depend on uh, a governmental system uh, propping that whole thing up. Okay, so I want that fresh, local, safe food for my kids. Yep. Right? I love, I love the farmers. There are some great farm families that have been here forever in Back Creek Valley. They're great folks. I want to support them. Yep. And I know they grow good food, and I want it for my family. Yep. But I want to know it's safe. And look, they're great families. I love them. But, okay. you know, they're trying to make a living, and they, they get tired. And, you know, if they drop the ball and their stuff's not being, not, you know, if it's if we take away the government inspections, and we don't yet have this what you what you propose as the UL type inspection for agriculture right. in the state. What would you, as the as the state commissioner of agriculture, do to foster um, the the development of that kind of a system? Or do you think that it's the government's job to foster that? Uh, so I I think it's the government's job to protect our rights, as I said before. And when you get out of the way, the free market will develop systems that are necessary for itself. And when you get out of that way and a consumer like yourself wants this, somebody is going to be an enterprising young man or young lady and say, hey, here's an opportunity that I can find my place in this society and create such an organization 
and now I found my place so in the world. So this so lady, it's, a, it's free market. <laughs> this lady who did 4-H in high school, grew up on one of the local farms, uh, went to college and got an ag degree, comes back and says, I will be the inspector for the products coming from these places, but you know what the, the, the local farms pay me and that, that's going to cause a bump in your call, in your prices. If you want to buy the thing with my little inspection label on it, you, know, you have to pay for my services as an inspector. Mm -hmm. But right. it's going to be inspections that are based on actual science rather than legislation, right? which is, of course, political, which, of course, has very little to do with reality. It has to do with who can push the legislation through, and I'm speaking as a former legislator. Right. right. And uh, not only that, but, uh, you know, we're paying an independent uh, private entity to provide the service for us. That's is that correct. what you're proposing? Well, uh, pretty much on track. Go ahead, Tom. Uh, no, no, I was going to say, and Roy, wouldn't you say it's kind of similar to uh, organic certification? Uh, it would be similar. Uh, the problem with organic certification is the government took it over. It, right, right. I was going to go on to, to add that. Um, the program was awesome. Uh, it originated uh, in a fantastic uh, ethical model, and then the government hijacked it and, and ruined it. Exactly. Now, uh, so how do we pay for this? Well, for one thing, if we don't have a government institution doing this, we can reduce taxes. And so some of that tax money that's now being spent can go to a private entity who really does the job that we're expecting them to do. Right. Okay. So that's how we pay for that system. And I, I think, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, uh, as a state, we could probably come up with a, like a model program for these private inspectors and perhaps even use some of our tax money to incur or help or encourage these people get their business off the ground. Because in effect, we're creating jobs and we're also protecting the rights of individuals and we're making sure to ensure the safety of our food. Right. You know, in West Virginia is a small state. We're under 2 million, uh, you know, somewhere around 1.7 million people. So I do believe that we can do that on a small scale here. And we're going to be like the beachhead, uh, you know, of a like the torch event in North Africa where you establish a beachhead through West Virginia to set this up and then it expands and grows to other small states who says, hey, I want a piece of that. And maybe they figure out how to do it better. You know, we right. might be first and and lead the way and somebody else says, I like what you're doing, but I got a different idea. And, you know, now we're starting to establish the republic of what we were supposed to be to start with. And then maybe West Virginia adjusts and says, ah, yeah, we got it started and and I like what they're doing over there. Maybe that's a little bit, you know, and, and so let's adopt some of that. And innovation market will always provide what consumers want and demand when right. government stays out of the way and, and doesn't prop up and protect an industrial system that's really false. Right. We have a false sense of safety and a false sense of security in the current system. So it's not working. That's the bottom line. And we got to get government out of the way to protect that system so that the free market can innovate enough to come up with these ideas that work for what consumers really demand. Well, that's right. And I think, uh, you know, we could look back and see uh, the federal government subsidizing farmers. Uh, I think that that's that's crazy. Uh, I feel like that there should there doesn't need to be a, a federal department of agriculture. It should be handled at the state. Uh, or even at the county level. Mm -hmm. um, so, 
Yeah, okay. go ahead, Marshall. I think you had another question. Yeah, if you don't mind. Um, okay, so we talked about the direct from farm to my family, but a lot of this these agricultural products need to be processed. So mm -hmm. we buy local beef. We have a friend who raises sure. cattle and, you know, he sends them off to be processed. And we have to let him know months in advance when we want a side of beef because, you know, he's got to coordinate with the inspector, with the slaughterhouse and all this kind of stuff. Right. So if we had a, I mean, a small time operator here in, in Berkeley County um, under this system of voluntary inspection, you know, in other words, I'm the consumer. I demand that my, my food be safe. Sure. And then we've got a local uh, inspector who does this for a living as a private contractor. Um, you know, and then, of course, people wonder, well, what if your private contractor fails? Well, who holds the private contractor or holds the private contractor accountable mm -hmm. for the failure to complete that contract? Is that then where the government comes in? You sue them in court? Well, you know, how do we take care of other contract law issues? Okay, so I, I think the, you've answered that question well, there. You know, and, that's that's how we uphold that. Okay, so if the government people. fails to uphold its contract, how do we how do we hold them accountable? Uh, well, in theory, we should unelect them and put somebody else in. Right. So <clears throat> you 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 fire your government employees, uh, and you get new ones. Okay, so once again, this is me dealing with my local farmer, and we together make a contract with a local slaughterhouse. Does that seem like it would work given your your private contractor inspector? Yes, I believe it absolutely will work. It's going to incentivize more uh, slaughterhouses to open mm -hmm. based on the demand. And you might have some communities where there is no slaughterhouse because there's not a demand. Uh, folks just want to stay in the industrial system, uh, and that's fine for, for that. you got other communities where uh, there's a lot of cattle and a lot of hogs, and they, they want to get their product to local uh, buyers. And, and I think somebody's going to say, you know what, it takes a year to get into that slaughterhouse. Maybe my facility over here, uh, can work to create some opportunity and, and I can cut that time down. Okay. There's enough demand to go around. Okay. So the next level of course, in the market is retail. Mm -hmm. So I don't want to buy a side of beef. I want to go get a pot roast. Yep. And I go to my local farm market and I want a packaged pre-cut you know, ready to go pot roast. Yep. It looks like it was never part of an animal at all. Yeah. Right. And, uh, but uh, I do want it to come from a local farm. I want it to be fresh and I want it to be clean and safe. Right. Uh, so does that, you know, can the, can the retailers who are running businesses who are being supplied by local farms, can they be assured through this private contractor and uh, inspector that they're receiving a product that they can then put on the market to, to, you know, whoever's willing, you know, like I said, our local farm markets have people coming from, uh, Maryland and, and uh, Virginia. Right, right. So people come across state lines to purchase here. Does that work? Because I understand that once you make a sale across state lines, that does become the purview of the federal government. Right. So would our retailers, local retailers, be protected if people came from outside the state and purchased from their facility something that was locally inspected and processed? So right now we have, just take the current system, we have three levels of inspection for meat. Uh, you've got federal inspection through the USDA, state inspection through the West Virginia Department of Ag and custom uh, slaughter. Uh, custom slaughter is designed for uh, you buy an animal, uh, you know, a hog or a cow, and have it processed at the slaughterhouse, and you're taking it home, and it's not for resale. Uh, you can divide that, me and you can go in half and half on it, or we can do quarters, 
you know, you can't get down to the individual, you know, pound of meat. Uh, if somebody wants to buy a pound of hamburger, well, if it's safe enough for four of us to go together and buy this cow, because we're saying under this exact model, it's safe, right? Mm -hmm. If it's safe enough for that, then why can't we sell a pound of hamburger to the guy that wants to buy a pound of hamburger? Well, they I don't want to buy your logic. Cow. The question is, is it feasible in the marketplace to do that without getting, you know, without losing your business to the government for, you know. Well, they're not losing their business as it is right now by selling a whole animal or quarters to people. So they could just sell a pound of meat. Okay. But once again, I understand the logic, the logistics. The question is, is it legally feasible? Will they get in trouble if people from another state come and buy their products and take them home and eat them? So if, people they, come, if they're only locally inspected, yeah. Not not state inspected, not federally inspected, locally inspected by a private inspection contractor. And people yeah, from so out of state. Right now. I'm sorry, Tom. And people from out of state are buying them. So I, I have a question, too, that I wanted to throw in real quick. Uh, uh, didn't Thomas Massey enter, uh, try to introduce some legislation called the Prime Act Correct. Uh, that, that deals with this? And, and, and yeah, I'll address that. And I was going to bring that up. So under the current model, if, if I want to sell out of state, I have to be federally inspected, meaning I'm taking my product to another state to sell. Right. If somebody comes to my state, then it doesn't matter. They can buy under my state inspection uh, as it is. It doesn't have to be federal because they came to my state to buy and took it home. And folks do that a lot of times. You know, in West Virginia is that unique shape that we have a lot of uh, we have a lot of borders with other states, so a lot of folks are close to another state. I hear people going across the border, by the way, to other states to buy their products, whether it be raw milk uh, or meat or, you know, some of their farm, uh, farm sourced products because they're close to the border and they go do that. Uh, so the, the Prime Act uh, is a bill sponsored by Thomas Massey uh, for the federal level to essentially uh, cut the regulations on this kind of what we were talking about with being able to sell a pound of meat. So you're reducing that down to the custom level uh, inspection and being able to sell individual cuts. So the farmer could have it slaughtered under custom, which means you don't have to. So the facility still is inspected. You've got a sense of cleanliness to that to that facility, that it's a clean facility, but an inspector is not standing over watching that piece of meat that goes through the slaughterhouse. Right. Uh, again, that's safe enough to send home to you to buy a quarter or a half or a whole beef. Under the Prime Act, you would be able to then sell through your local farmer's market or direct to consumers from the farm uh, or small markets like we have around various places of West Virginia. It's not going into the industrial system. You know, we're not putting it under a big label at, at Kroger's, for instance, under, you know, like the Black Angus logo or something where, uh, one pound of hamburger has parts of about a hundred different animals actually incorporated into that because they all went into a big vat and were incorporated together. This would be, uh, you could sell a pound of burger or a pound of roast from an individual animal in your local community with reduced regulations. And I support that as a federal legislation and to, uh, to bring that in as the comparative state level legislation to support that as an incorporated measure. Very good. Um, so I would 
along the same lines, but I'm going to touch on something that I have spoken with you about before and, and read in other interviews you've done. I know you have a passion for raw milk. Uh, so would that fit the same model? Uh, pretty close. So again, let's go back to the principle. The principle is a free market and let people uh, decide for themselves what level of risk uh, they're willing to take. There's a lot of contention with raw milk, and I would never cram a product down somebody's throat that they don't want or feel comfortable with. Right. We're not talking about replacing uh, Borden's Finest in Kroger's uh, with raw milk and take something away from you. We're talking about making a product available for those who do want to consume it uh, and those who do want to produce it. So I have neighbors uh, down the road. By the way, I don't want to do dairy. Uh, I farm and do a lot of different things, but that's not an area that I want to pick up. So, uh, you know, I'm not going to be able to have milk for my family uh, under the current uh, regime that we have. So, uh, but I do have a neighbor who would- You're not going to be able to have raw milk for your family. Raw milk, right. correct. Yeah, I'm sorry. Let me, glad you corrected that. We'll make sure. Uh, so- uh, so as it is right now, if my neighbor wanted to uh, produce milk and wanted to sell it to me and I wanted to go buy a gallon of milk from him, it's as illegal as moonshine, Yeah, which is ridiculous. There is a herd share program, uh, and, and I was part of getting that legislation passed several years ago. Uh, there was a group of us that went together and we had two bills. Uh, we had an open sales bill, which means you could just buy an individual gallon of milk when you wanted to buy it. And then we had a herd share bill. And, and the idea was that if we couldn't get one passed, at least we might get the other one passed. And we we're taking baby steps to get there. So the herd right. share bill passed, but there was a lot of heavy regulations uh, that got interjected into it. And uh, most folks uh, who are farming just don't want to go through the regulations. There's a lot of cost, a lot of oversight in there. And then as a consumer. Wait, wait, wait. I'm sorry. Uh, Todd, I know this is your question. but No, no. I'm right. Yeah. So as a principle, you're saying that the increase in regulations decreases the number of people who are willing to produce, which decreases the production, which does what to the cost? Increases. It raises the cost. So now there's less in the in the environment to buy. You've only got a few registered herd shares. And there's a lot of folks in West Virginia that are going to other states to buy raw milk because it's available there and it's not available here. And when you do buy it here, for the few people who do produce it, I hear stories of folks driving over two hours to get a gallon of milk, and they're paying, you know, anywhere from five to twelve dollars a gallon. It's How much are they make. spending on the gas to get there? Plus the gas, plus their time. People's time is worth something. What else could they have done with their time? Yeah. Nobody would think that they've got to drive two hours to get groceries. Well, I mean. Imagine that <laughs> when you get when you get down to brass tacks, time is our most valuable resource, period. Right. I've only got 24 hours a day and, and I've got to figure out how I'm going to spend it. Right. So. Uh, Sorry. Thank you. No, that's all right. Uh, so, yeah, the, the the increase of regulations has contributed to reduced availability. Uh, so I got a neighbor who would love to produce raw milk and sell it to other neighbors in the community and that they could have an income that helps, uh, you know, build their own life and, and give them something that they could do. And if we were to do that right now, uh, you know, that would be illegal. So right. we're trying to uh, create opportunities for more people. Uh, I'm willing to buy it. And, uh, uh, you know, nobody's cramming it down anybody's throat. I can't go down and force another farmer to, to start producing this, but 
in a voluntary system when they're willing to do it and I'm willing to, to buy it, then uh, I just want the opportunity to do so in a free market economy. Uh, you know, when it was part of the, the problem with the herd share also is you're spending money to pay the maintenance cost of the animal because you own part of the animal allegedly. And uh, you're getting in exchange for that a gallon, roughly a gallon of milk a week uh, for that share. Well, how many people aren't uh, aren't trying to get out of their timeshares that they got into with condominiums, vacation condos, uh, because it's not a model that most people want to be in. So they get into it and realize, oh, this doesn't work so well. I'm not right. going on vacation anyway, and I'm paying for this. Well, in the raw milk, it's the herd share. Uh, it's a similar concept. You're paying for something even when you don't need it. So I go out of town for a couple of weeks. Maybe I'm on vacation, uh, going to visit family, and the farmer still expects me to pay for that herd share, and I don't need the milk during that time. What about during uh, holidays or a period of time that I want to do more baking? And, oh, I need three or four gallons of milk. Well, I don't want to just buy four herd shares because I can't do that for the week. I just need to be able to buy extra milk when I need to buy it and not buy it when I don't want it. What a concept. Imagine doing that with our other basic commodities. Let's go back to the meat. You know, do I have a meat share at Kroger's or any other grocery store that, right. uh, and I use Kroger's because they're a local grocery store to me and they're kind of a national chain. So yep. uh, I reference them a lot, but uh, under, you know, under the current model, I don't have to go in and buy a set amount every week. Right. I buy what I want and we're used to that. Uh, we're used to those options. So I just want the same kind of option for other products. And we shouldn't have to go to a national chain grocery store to have the same kind of option with our other, other products. We should be able to go to our neighbor and do the same thing. Well, that's right. And I think, uh, you know, I mean, food is one of those things that you can't really lock someone into a contract because you don't know if, if you have family to come over or you have a picnic or, you know, your food uh, needs vary uh, too much to be in a contract for that. I agree with you. 100%. Right. In my case, you've got four kids who eat more than anybody could possibly imagine, you know. Oh, come on. Your kids right, don't so eat much. If I made one last point, I have one last question about right. food security. Okay. So, from your perspective, food security is the, the foundational element of food security is availability, right? That's a part of it. Yeah. Okay. Is that the primary issue? So availability and safety are the elements of food security, if I understand you correctly. Pretty much. There's okay. more to it. So there has to be so food. There has to be it food. Has to be it, available it has to, to you. be clean, and safe has, food okay. that that's available to me. All right. So back back uh, when the government went bananas over the uh, the COVID uh, situation, they shut down national uh, um, butcher houses. Right. Okay. Oh, I thought so, you were making a play on bananas there for a second. I'm sorry. <laughs> I love bananas, man. You know, I lived in the jungle and there were like 15 varieties available at all times and I loved it. Yep. But uh, anyway, so. Um, so you had more availability in a remote country in the jungle? Well, I mean, where they grew naturally. <laughs> yeah, when you could just walk out and pick them. No, literally. I mean, yeah. uh, I was walking through the jungle one day and I was just dying. I was, I was thirsty and I was hungry and I was, you know, I was. Uh, I'd been working hard all day and I saw a fresh ripe pineapple growing right there and I was able to just pick that thing and eat it. It was that's very, awesome. What a best pineapple I ever had. So anyway, they the the government decided that because of their concerns about COVID, they would shut down these national slaughterhouses that provide to all of the major chain restaurants, or not restaurants, but also restaurants, 
right. the grocery stores. Right. So in your model, if I understand it correctly, um, would the government have the authority to shut down my local um, slaughterhouse that's privately owned and there's a privately contracted inspector? Would I still have availability of meat? And should I be concerned that uh, my meat's going to be uh, infected? I mean, so so in the in the most simple answer to that, the government shouldn't have the authority to shut down any business, period. It's private business. We don't work for the governor. We don't look, work for the health department. Uh, so, so that's the foundation of that. Uh, now, how do we uh, 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 how do we ensure that we've got food available within the community instead of having to ship it from a centralized facility that got shut down or that's being hindered? When you distribute that across the country to a lot of little slaughterhouses, then each place can decide for themselves what they're going to do. And now you've got food in every little community and thousands of slaughterhouses or thousands of processing facilities and you don't have to depend on that transportation you don't have to depend on uh, you know did 100 people not come to work at this you know whether it's the government shutting them down or it's it's uh, internal you know did the company management decide we're not going to operate because that's the other side of it some of those were internal company decisions and not government decisions you know and they have the right to do that but when you distribute it out amongst a lot of different nodes, essentially, now you've got food hubs all over instead of depending on one central site that controls it all. Okay, so if we have this system up and running, and here in Back Creek Valley, where I live, there are farms, they're producing meat. Um, there's a, a central slaughterhouse in Back Creek Valley for the yep. farms that serves uh, Back Creek Valley. Yep. And there is a contracted inspector, and either the, the local... Um, the local farmers say, hey, we're concerned because the the uh, the uh, slaughtering facility, you know, some of the people who work there have become ill or the local management at that facility say, hey, we have to shut down operations until our people are, are well again because they've been sick or the inspector who we're all paying by buying the meat that's inspected by that person says, hey, guys, we really need to cease production here. Uh, we got some sick people just to be safe. We need to make sure we don't send any more product out. Yeah. Then what happens, if I understand your model, what happens is I can no longer buy meat from that processing plant, but the one two valleys over, which may or may not have, you know, sick employees, if, if they're still producing, then I can decide whether or not I want to purchase from them for my family. That's right. You have more opportunities, more options distributed around. And it's just like a grocery store. If you don't want to go to, to this grocery store, you can go to this grocery store. And most towns around have at least two options. You know, they might not be great options, but you've at least got two options or more. And if not, you can go to the next town over. And in, in a lot of places where we have, we have those options. We don't have those options for local food. All right. Well, I've exhausted my challenges for the moment. I might do some more research and uh, and get back on Roy and, and demand some answers on certain things. But uh, sure, I, I to me this sounds what what Roy is proposing in allowing West Virginians to build their own system for making sure that they're getting safe and food and that the food is available in greater amounts than it's available right now. Uh, it sounds to me like a pretty serious heavy lift because you would have to 
to you're not a legislator as as the commissioner of agriculture you're a member you're a head of an executive department right and the executive department or the executive branch of the government is called executive because it executes the will of the people as expressed through the legislature meaning the law right right so the executive branch executes, executes the, law. the law there are currently laws on the books that require the system that we have right now so in order to allow the system you're describing to actually grow, there would have to be legislative action to dismantle the not, not the system that exists, but the requirements for the system that exists. The system that exists could continue existing, if I understand. Right. There simply wouldn't be a, a legislative or a legal requirement that it exists. Okay. So, so I'm let, going to, let, I'm me, sorry. let me finish real quick. Sorry. I'm sorry. So um how how would you as the head of it, a uh, department in the executive branch, affect what happens in the legislature. I'm glad you asked that because uh, I do have a big legislative agenda, uh, both nationally and at the state level. Uh, you know, I've been working on passing legislation. I mentioned the raw bill, raw milk bill uh, that I've worked on for several years. And what happens is you'll find delegates or senators who are willing to take that bill up and say, "Oh yes, I'll be your champion." Uh, and I'll get other people on, you know, and you get sponsors and so forth. And then you have an executive that happens to come around or his representatives and says, kill that bill. Or I don't want that bill to work as you've got it right now. We need to make changes because I don't like it. And so that executive is always looked at as the expert uh, of that given department. And the legislators are uh, are looking to them for that advice. So. That guy or gal uh, happens to stand in the way of a lot of that legislation passing to deregulate, or in some cases to regulate more heavily, uh, and 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 put those laws into practice. Uh, case in point, there was a new permit that was enacted uh, a couple of years ago when none of us were allowed in the in the shiny white building in Charleston, and uh, we didn't even know what was going on. So then we got a new permit crammed down our throats for. Farmers markets. Uh, well, the shiny white building, you mean the Capitol? I'm talking about okay. the Capitol. Yeah, yeah. Uh, glad you pointed that out. Uh, so uh, uh, I intend to reverse those things and be the expert that talks with the legislators and builds that rapport and says we need to undo these things that are better for the people of the state, according to our Constitution and the, the principle of protecting everybody's innate natural rights. Okay. Todd, if I can, one last thing, I swear, this is it. This is it. I'm done. No, okay. you're So to get legislation passed or to get legislation passed to undo past legislation, right? Yeah. Past PAST legislation. Exactly. Who holds the power? Well, really, it's the people. Okay. The people who influence their legislators to pass or not pass a particular bill. So do you uh, consider so, it within your purview as the head of an executive department to engage in direct diplomacy with the people of the state of West Virginia to inform them of what you're trying to do and to inform of them of, inform them of who is stonewalling them? Yes. So and, you would literally say, hey, I propose this to the legislator, legislature Yes. These specific legislators are the ones who prevented you from having the opportunity to buy fresh local meat that's inspected by, you know, someone who grew up in your community and is 
is licensed to inspect it. That's correct. And that's yes. commonly done by a lot of the executive branch. You know, if you're a, a secretary of, you know, fill in the blank, or in this case, the commissioner of agriculture, uh, everybody's got their own agenda of what they're trying to accomplish. And they need the will of the people in order to make these things happen, uh, or the lack of will of the people in a lot of cases. Uh, and, and I believe that people need to be more informed on these issues, and then they can make better informed decisions for themselves. And my gosh, <laughs> the people are the foundation of this country. So uh, why should they not be informed of what's going on? And then they call their legislators. By the way, uh, I've been very successful as a grassroots, uh, particularly in the homeschool community of uh, helping legislation get passed, influencing that. And, uh, and right now I have a rapport for some of the farming legislation that I want changed uh, with legislators who have agreed to take that up. Uh, they see things the same way, and uh, they're in the, uh, in touch with the will of the people that they represent and understand these same factors and agree. And so it's just a matter of building uh, building more will of the people and influencing the legislators that this is what the people want. This is what's good for the country uh, in protecting our natural rights and uh, building a better free market economy. Well, I'm glad that you mentioned that, Roy, because, uh, you know, one of our I think one of our primary focuses in our mission here on Taproot is to uh, educate people as to how they can become involved in their government and hold their elected officials accountable. And uh, I feel that, as Marshall said, with you being in an executive branch, uh, you don't have the power to make laws. And so you would definitely have to find champions in the legislature that would be willing to take up your cause and educate their constituents as to here's what Roy's trying to do. And we want to make available raw milk or local produce or whatever, and have it to be safe and available for people in local communities. And if people understood that that was actually empowering them to have a business, to employ people in their local community, to have a local farmer's market, to be able to buy things locally that they knew were safe. And they could, like Marshall said, in some cases, they may go to the farmer's market and they're going to talk to John Smith and say, hey, your lettuce is amazing. It's always fresh and crisp and, you know, so much better than I can get at one of the, you know, other supermarkets. So I think that's a great thing. But your challenge, as Marshall has alluded to, is to find people that will actually champion your causes in the legislature and to build an alliance with people. And, and frankly, uh, I feel that a lot of times Marshall's initial question was, would you be willing to call out people uh, for not for stonewalling? And I think that that doesn't happen as much as it should. I think that just I remember Marshall using the illustration uh, that he would like to get into a department and shine the light on not actually try to make change, but just say, look, here's here's what was proposed. And here's the people that took your bill and crammed it into a, a committee and it died there. And that was done on purpose. You know, right. so that that somebody needs to shine a flashlight on that and say, here's what's going on. And you are the ones who can change that because the power lies with the people. Right. You know, uh, a perfect example of that recently was a homeschool bill. Uh, and we were able to do that through our grassroots homeschool network. Of, hey, here's a bill coming that is not good for us uh, and they won't fix it. And we named names. That was the key thing. We, we told folks, 
here are the legislators and the folks that are causing this. You need to call them right. and tell them to to either fix this when, until we couldn't get it fixed and then to stop the bill. And then later when they did come around and they decided, oh, we'll play ball and we'll fix this. Okay, now we can get behind and support this. So we were kind of back and forth, but it was all based on what the people wanted within our community and them influencing their legislators to either support or not support the bill that we were that we were at hand here talking about. And I have no problem in naming names and pointing folks out and doing the right thing because that's ultimately what it is. It's not always easy. It's not always fun. Right. Uh, I've spent uh, all my adult life doing things that weren't easy and fun. Sure. And I'm committed to continuing that because uh, that's just a service to the people and the community that that I'm in. It Absolutely. makes a better life for all of us. In conjunction with what Roy's saying here about civic responsibility, the actual responsibility of citizens, uh, we have done an episode on this, this podcast of how to use the West Virginia legislative website specifically to find the bills, read the bills, understand the bills, and then hold specific legislators accountable for their actions during the process of that bill's uh, consideration in the legislature. So absolutely, me, I just thought that was important. Go back. Yes. If you haven't watched that episode, please go back and, and watch that episode. It will give you some tools and uh, knowledge that you need to hold your legislators accountable. That's a great point. Thank you, Marshall. Yeah. I see that's in some of our related communities as well through social media that are using those very tools now because of some of this education and understanding folks that would have never looked something up online are now using that tool to find out for, them, for themselves what's really happening. And, and so they're becoming more educated. And as you know, it's hard to get the wheel going to start with. Right. And once you get, it's hardest to get one person to do something like that. And once that, that person goes, then 10 more will follow. Build momentum. And once you get 10 more, then you get not just a hundred more, but a thousand more behind it. And it starts becoming exponential. So yeah. build mass yeah. and mass builds momentum. It's uh I well, guess it's kind of like the, the taproot of once you get the taproot established, you start getting a whole lot more roots all around. That's right. And you get a nice big canopy to shelter everyone. Well, Todd, my coffee cup's empty. I think that means we're done, right? I think that that would be a good sign. Well, I appreciate both of you being here with me today. And uh, this has been an excellent episode. And I look forward to uh, perhaps interviewing Roy again in the future. And we'll cover some other topics. Can we uh, can we use this as an opportunity to invite any other candidates for any other positions anywhere across the state of West Virginia to holler at us? And uh, we'd like to have you on the program. And we will give you some serious, thoughtful questions and allow you the opportunity to seriously and thoughtfully respond. Absolutely. So, uh, uh, if you contact us via s.marshall.wilson, s.marshall.wilson at protonmail.com. That's one word, protonmail, P-R-O-T-O-N-M-A-I-L.com, s.marshall.wilson at protonmail.com. Or if you don't want to talk to a hard-headed uh, old grunt, maybe you could contact Todd, who actually is a smart guy on the program, and uh, he can schedule you for, for an interview. But we, we really think the people need to hear what you have to say. Thanks, Todd. Yeah, and we'll go ahead and, and make sure to put uh, contact information for Roy and for us uh, in the uh, description. Thank you, so, sir. Thank you. You guys right. have a great day. Thank you. Appreciate being on. Thanks for listening to Taproot. 
where we plumb the depths and encompass the breadth of liberty. If you love liberty and would see it established once again for all men, we want to hear from you. Please rate and review the podcast and check out our YouTube at Marshall4WV. That's Marshall, M-A-R-S-H-A-L-L, the number four, W-V. Join us next time for more discussions on how we might restore the Republic to secure the certain unalienable rights with which all men were endowed by their creator. Thanks.